This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. My name is Seth there. Welcome to another episode of Speaker for the Living. I am here with JJ Genflone, and we are going to once again talk about fair trade. In this case, we're going to talk about products other than coffee and give you a wider idea of how fair trade looks for other products. If you want to hear our overview, a couple Sundays ago we published one that gave an overview of fair trade, focused a lot on coffee, and the conclusion that it came away with is fair trade does some good, but it's not the solution. It's not going to end poverty globally but it plays a part. And so with that, I'll hand it over to JJ. How you doing? I am good. I'm I'm happy to do sort of a a lighter, happier podcast as opposed to just talking about sort of like terrible stories. No, I'm excited for this. And I think what'll be fun about doing this fair trade focusing on something that's not an edible consumable is that I know that I know at least personally for me that my food budget is normally quite tight. You know, being a grad student, I have a very limited budget to work with. So oftentimes with food and things like that, I'm always going to go or almost always I'm going to go with the cheapest alternative. We talked about this with my terrible garbage coffee opinions. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to things that are consumables that aren't edible, that are a little bit more long-term, you know, the makeup that I choose to buy, the clothing that I choose to wear, that sort of thing, normally I can plan those purchases out a little bit more. And so because I'm already saving just a little bit up each month to buy, say, I'm a Sephora junkie, so like a new highlighter, it's not nearly as difficult for me too, because I'm already setting aside, you know, like $5 a month to get up to that highlighter. It's not completely out of the realm of my ability to go, okay, well, while I'm setting this aside and waiting, I'm going to find a fair trade alternative. Or if this fair trade alternative, as we talked about, is a little bit higher in terms of cost, I can wait. Well, and let's go ahead and list off what we're going to talk about so people can decide their level of interest. I am going to talk about one perishable type of food, and that's bananas, and that's because it is an example where the fair trade looks more at the labor side because they hire employees. Fair trade for things like coffee, they don't have regular employees outside their family, extended family, or producers. And so those are more temporary migrant workers. But when they have ongoing workers in a more of a plantation setting, there are stricter guidelines that apply under like flow with Fairtrade International. I'm also going to uh, briefly talk about roses. And JJ, what do you want to talk about? So I'm going to be talking about two types of cosmetics so just like pure straight up makeup cosmetic and then i'm also going to be talking about sort of more grooming tools so soaps moisturizer skincare that kind of stuff and then i'm going to be talking about fashion and this idea of is it better to buy things that are dead stock is it better to buy things that are new or used and does expensive automatically mean fair trade All right. To start with, we'll go from more familiar to unfamiliar. So we'll start with some of mine. Mm -hmm. So let's see. Roses. If you haven't heard of fair trade roses, so about 80% of cut flowers sold in the United States are grown in Latin America, South America, and Africa. Some of the issues that have been in that industry are that... You might have dangerous pesticides, not surprising there, poor labor practices or corrupt management. And fair trade is uh, one approach to dealing with that. And it wasn't that long ago, maybe like five years ago, where I'd heard of fair trade roses. My initial expression was surprise because I had never connected those two. You don't always think of flowers. And I often think of flowers coming from somewhere locally. And the fact that so many come from other countries is initially a surprise. 
when did you become aware of like fair trade flowers jj i would say probably in the last two years or so is when i started seeing it first advertised if I mean, I know because I had kind of been floating around this field of sort of the idea of fair trade everything, or as we talked about, sort of free trade everything or sustainable sort of everything. Um, But when it comes to the actual, like, deliverable flowers, not like plants that you would plant at your home, but, you know, things you would get for, say, Valentine's Day or since Mother's Day is coming up, you know, something you would send to a loved one. I would say it's only been the last two years that I've seen actual advertisements that have been like, it's not that our flowers are the cheapest or the fastest, it's that ours are the fairest, and that's why you should buy them. Well, with flowers, they've only been fair trade certified since, looks like, around 2001. Ecuador, which I'm going to refer to as part of a case study, they were certified in 2002. Uh, Historically, quite a few of... Roses sold in the United States come from Ecuador. I've seen estimates as high as one-third. But to give a little background first on how Fairtrade International, which again is distinct from Fairtrade USA, although at one point they were all under the same umbrella of Fairtrade International. Most products like coffee and cocoa are certified through smallholder farmer cooperatives. And they expanded into plantations for certain products like bananas, like flowers, and call those hired labor organizations. And that really began with tea plantations in 1994. So there's one big difference between tea and coffee, plantations versus smallholder farms as far as fair trade is concerned. And so for hired labor, fair trade takes a more stringent view where they're looking at the laborers and not just the owners of the farms. And again, these tend to be larger farms. And there's approximately 170,000 plus people currently working in fair trade certified hired labor context, according to Fairtrade International. So in a report, which I'll link to, assessing the impacts of fair trade on worker-defined forms of empowerment on Ecuadorian flower plantations in 2014, they were looking at how to measure this. And some of the things that are part of worker rights, freedom from discrimination, freedom of association and collective bargaining, fair conditions of employment, no forced or child labor, occupational health and safety. Now, they went and they asked them, what is empowerment to you? So when you're doing measuring and evaluation, or M&E, as they call it, not to be confused with enemies or uh, the local painting company that we have called that, uh, M&E is the term where, like, how are you going to measure and then how are you going to evaluate? And then evaluation, Uh get a feedback loop where you make changes and then monitor and evaluate. But there's this conceptual difference between outputs and outcome whereas output is typically something concrete you measure like are these plantations having like a meeting or two to discuss wages or other concerns like that would be an output whereas the outcome is empowerment like what you ultimately want And when you're trying to improve the situation of laborers, it can be dangerous to either confuse these two or to just say, well, we're getting 100% on this measurement, therefore everything is good. Now, hopefully, your ultimate outcome of like having workers feel empowered, workers actually feel free, align. But, like, if you feel good about them having certain inspections or that there are certain conversations taking place, but then the worker doesn't ultimately feel free or feel empowered, then there's a disconnect. Which is one reason why, and this is ultimately where I'm going with this, like, Fairtrade International has done worker interviews and studies to see if their system is working. But if you're doing a certification process, 
there's something being measured already because you're going through the process and having people inspect the farms. But by taking the additional step of seeing, well, are those indicators working as intended? And how do the workers actually feel about this process? So that would be the basic explanation. Is there anything you would add or explain differently, JJ? No, I mean, I think that that's a fair breakdown of it. But again, why, what I'm struck with is is that this is supposed to be a tool, ideally, that makes it easier for consumers to make better choices or sort of more sustainable choices. And instead, what it's turned out to be is this very complicated, convoluted, and expensive process. In the report where they worked with empowerment and they went and say, okay, what does this mean to you? And it, for the Ecuadorian flower workers, it was about developing confidence to express ideas and concerns in the workplace. It was about the development of collective capacities to generate dialogue among workers, develop proposals and negotiate proposals with management and about the development of joint bodies' capacities to lead discussions on development and execute fair trade premium projects. Now, fair trade premium projects could be how that the, the premium from the fair trade price goes to workers, such as in lowest interest loans. And so a lot of it in this case was the workers want to have a say. And I think... That actually brings up a really good point. You're, you're, the last thing there is that the idea of workers having a say, because as I'll talk about sort of in the fashion section, what remains pervasive is that we only almost have to separate products into three categories. You have products who what is in them is fair or free trade, say it's a lotion, you know, the materials that are in it that make it up. Then you have the actual packaging, which may be provided from another company altogether. And then you have the seller of that product and the people that are used to sell the product, use it. I'll talk about this exclusively when I talk about the idea of sort of goodwills and exploitative labor force. And when you think about sort of separating up into people, fair trade is only, it seems, concerned with that initial creation not what happens to the product afterwards. Right. It's still highly based on on trade and on part of, I guess, the, the farm process, but, but not necessarily all the farm process, depending on which product it is. Which is just so complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give Fairtrade International credit for doing some measuring and evaluation and then publishing the reports and showing mixed indicators or showing mixed results in their indicators. And uh, that's part of what this shows. And uh, you can take a look at the report and dig deeper into that. So then with bananas, which we're all a little more familiar to, I... Bananas. Bananas. When I finally went overseas, like <laughs> Uganda and Cambodia, like seeing bananas in a tree for the first time is kind of amazing. And then seeing like, that's where that comes from. Seeing somebody on a bicycle with, you know, a couple stalks. I don't know if that's what they call them. Of bananas. I think it's bunches. Bunches. And you see them and they're green and they that's that's other part with fruit from other countries. That's often green, like very green and then ripens later. Oh, well, yeah, cuz you don't want to buy something ripe cuz that just means it's probably going to be old by the time you get Pure sugar, soft sure. sugar. But uh, bananas are a notable product within fair trade. There'll be a specific couple banana reports I'm going to link to. In 2015, there were 125 producer groups across 10 countries that were fair trade certified, comprising 74 small producer organizations and 51 plantations. And those are banana places, and the primary countries were Colombia, Ecuador, Dominican Republic, Ghana, and Cameroon. Uh, Fairtrade International has gone through a few iterations with their Fairtrade standard for hired, hired labor. 
which I will give them credit for. Uh, in 2014, they improved it, the requirements to more actively protect worker rights to organize and collective bargain. And the organizations must declare this right publicly. They must allow unions to meet with workers and they have to offer to engage in, in a collective garden. garden yeah. Garden, gardening would make sense. Bargaining process with worker <laughs> representatives. Now, of course, anyone can say they're doing this. That's the challenge with any certification, but that's why they're trying to find ways to be shown that this is taking place. And so they're working with them on that. They're also working on living wage discussions. They're defining benchmarks for different countries. And they're also helping with workers as they define or, or they have some control over how to use the fair trade premium. So that's part of what it means to workers. But a lot of it with workers in general is do you have a say when there's an issue? Do you feel you can speak? Do you have a way to improve the situation like in terms of things that would affect health like pesticides? And any other safety issue? Do you have a way to get medical help? Are you having to pay higher fees and et cetera, et cetera? So like anywhere, if there isn't a mechanism for you to have a say, then it becomes a lot more complicated as a worker. And at the extreme point, it can end up in a situation of trafficking. So I'm glad that they are having some standards and trying to figure this out for certain types of fair trade products and that they are doing some evaluations to see if their outputs are actually achieving the outcomes. And in the later report, which was published in 2016, they actually point out like, here's, you know, here's the economic benefit, here's the social benefit, and here's the empowerment benefit, and yeah, this one we could do better, and this one we're doing good, and then they look at that with different countries. And that kind of transparency is really important. Fair trade, again, marketing is not always ideal. So, you know, there's things like that, but there's things like this where they're, they're making an effort. They also did one in Colombia, specifically, in 2013 and published in 2014. And that was following a 2010 study, which is good because it's good to have a baseline. Well, and it's also good to have a baseline that was produced within the last decade. I don't know, if Seth, if you've experienced this, but one of my biggest complaints about a lot of human trafficking data is I'll find what on the surface looks to be a really great in-depth study. And the last time it was updated was like 1982. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well... The internet happened. <laughs> so this right. is probably not accurate anymore. Right. Of course, that also makes me think of Melissa Farley and how she mix. She, she talks a lot about prostitution and sex trafficking and how she just mixes stats from different decades into one narrative. We'll talk about her someday. Mm-hmm. But in this study, they were able to do some comparison. And uh, as you know, Colombia has had the FARC rebels and uh, has had a lot of displaced people and had a lot of refugees. So stability is a good thing and anything that can lead to stability. And so that, you know, banana sector, their research says that things improved and stabilized. And with the fair trade premium committees that they had, which they call uh, formerly called joint bodies, they chose, okay, we want to be able to give loans to workers. And according to their research, and I haven't checked their methodology for all of these, because you can always do that. And maybe if you check it, it says something different. But with that caveat, that uh, it was said to be better loan terms, and they were able to do home improvement and more than 60% of the fair trade premium has been invested in housing. If you're in a permanent employee, permanent in some fashion, then you're living nearby and so you need some place to live and to be able to actually 
have investment in your living space and have some control of that is a very meaningful thing, especially since, say, migrant workers who may have very little control of housing, who may have substandard housing, plenty of instances where it is, even in the United States. So there were some benefits of that here too. And that's, housing is one indicator that relates to trafficking. Not, not as directly as say taking somebody's passport, but when you look at all these together, it can form a picture. Yeah, and I think if we're looking at sort of the phenomenon of trafficking as an event that happens to a whole person, that's a lot of things, I could see how housing could be a component in this idea of psychological coercion, right? Because what tends to get people into trafficking situations and keep them there is that they don't have a lot of social ties. They don't have a lot of social capital. They don't have a lot of investment in their community or their community doesn't have a lot of investment in them. So when you add in sort of housing, whether it's being sort of in just a terrible housing situation where it's not a safe place for someone to live versus even where it's just a super isolated housing condition, that to me definitely is a clear trafficking indicator. Right. Well, and in the United States where the visa regulations that employers co-sign, the law says certain types of housing may be required, etc. And when that's not done, then the employer is breaking the law. Different countries, different laws. So you'd have to look at that specific country. But that's just a really quick look at a few products, and I will link to those reports. And now I'm going to hand it over to JJ. <laughs> Talk about fair stuff. Yay, fairness! Like not Ren fairs <laughs> or county fairs. Although it would be fun at one point to do some investigative reporting on our people at Ren fairs exploited. Or just sad. <laughs> All right, so here's here's the dealio. I'm going to be talking first about cosmetics, and I want to be very clear that of the three companies that I'm using kind of as case studies, which are Lush, L-U-S-H, uh, Shiro Cosmetics, S-H-I-R-O, and Dr. Bronner's, only Lush is certified via the FLO, Fair Trade International, Lush is the only company that has that physical stamp of approval that they are fair trade. And even then, they're what they're allowed to use that, that mark for is only for ingredients in the final product which carry their mark. So for example, if Lush has a lot of plant-based items, so say things with like tea or cocoa or coconut, so that's when they're allowed to have it labeled as a fair trade item. And they are, according to Lush's homepage, they are working really hard to either sort of establish their own cosmetic-based fair trade agreement. And that's something that I'll mention with some of the other companies. But specifically, I just want to be clear that Lush is the only one that has the fair trade stamp. The rest talk about being fair trade and their designer and their marketing, but do not claim to have that fair trade certificate. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. I just kind of wanted to be clear. So I'm going to start off then with Lush, just because I've been talking about them. Now, Lush, if you've been on the internet, you've probably seen like the memes of people doing the bath bombs of Lush. Lush sells primarily bath products, everything from bath bombs to, uh, to bubble bath to lotions, but they also sell and like deodorants and things, but they also sell facial sort of treatments and hair treatments. So they do sell shampoo. They do sell sort of styling gel. They sell cleansers. So they're kind of a one-stop grooming shop and they're known for one having very minimalist packaging for example if you buy soap and things from them it's not going to come in a lot of plastic wrap it's going to come wrapped in like a piece of wax paper there at the store same with their bath bombs it's going to be in paper or actually they prefer if you buy sort of this scarf item from them that they wrap it in so lush is 
gone like kind of i think risen in popularity for for two reasons one i think people sort of respond to this sort of minimalist marketing you know it's everything is black with white work writing um it's a plant-based item but also because when there is an economic downturn they have something called the lipstick index have you ever heard of this stuff i mean i don't want to i don't want to judge but i assume no but uh i don't wear lipstick either so yeah so the lipstick index was a term that was coined by the chairman of um i believe it was estee lauder and what it talks about is how when there is a recession purchases of cosmetics go up because women in particular or sort of men who aren't afraid to let sort of the more feminine part of their self fly maybe don't have the money for a new outfit or a new handbag or a new expensive beauty treatment, but they still sort of want to feel pampered. So they will buy like a $2 bath bomb to sort of have a spa day at home, or they will spend a little bit more, more moisturizer because they know perhaps that they can't afford going to like a specialty dermatologist. Yeah, I am familiar with that from uh, coffee, actually, that lattes tend to not have too much of a recession because it's that uh, rewarding everyday moment that Starbucks likes to talk about. But it's true. It's it's a small luxury. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that that's kind of been picked up by people sort of in our age demographic of sort of 30 or younger who are working but don't have a lot of disposable income. So want to be kind of clear with what they're what they're buying and what they're getting. And Lush does feel, as the name suggests, very Lush. It does feel very luxurious and very expensive without having a super high price point. But one of the things that I really like about Lush is that they even break it down into give, doing things like toners. They do a, a toothpaste product. So they have a bunch of different things on offer. But what's difficult with Lush is, again, because what is marked fair trade for them is only the product itself. If you actually want to find out if what, if, you know, sort of the people who are harvesting these materials or the people who are actually then putting these materials together for them purchasing, if you actually want to find out the information on them, you have to really dig. And luckily in Lush's case and why I think Lush is a good first indicator is that Lush does have really good employee benefits and in fact has quite quite like sort of clear online benefits and perks and they also have a very high rating on Glassdoor and if you're unfamiliar with Glassdoor it is a website where you can register and see based on other people who have worked there what they say employees have and so lush uh in particular in the u.s has been known really great for giving very good pay very good employee benefits that you can automatically start on a company provided 401k after a year and that whether you're on the front line or you're working in the actual u.s based or canada-based factory and creating that they treat you very well and so Lush is an item that I go, yay, all right, cool. It's animal testing free. It's 100% vegetarian. It's 100% handmade. There's very little packaging. So all of these things made me go like, yes, I want to buy more of you. But again, what you do run into is that this is not a price point that every single person in the world can hit. Not everybody can afford you know, a $10 thing of toothpaste. And and that's unfortunate. And so this is why so much with trafficking ends up being these sort of wider discussions about, well, maybe if we just had poverty alleviation, everything would be better. Because then this sort of fundamental inequality would possibly be eradicated. Now, how we make that happen, I don't know. <laughs> Sliding over to another cosmetic product that is primarily uh, soap-based, although they do offer other things, and where, where I've sampled pretty much everything that Lush has to offer, uh, I've only used the soap from this particular company and the conditioner, so that's all I'm going to talk about. But 
uh, this is going to be Dr. Bronner's. And Seth and I have talked about Dr. Bronner's because it is a weird <laughs> product. Um, and in fact, there's a when it, when there's a documentary about it, that's all you need to know. I think to start off, uh, the documentary is called uh, Dr. Bronner's Magic Soapbox. It came out in 2006. It's on Netflix, I believe, or it was. That's where I initially saw it. And it is all about the Dr. Bronner's company, which primarily produces a Castile soap that is known for having these really crazy labels, right? These are the ones that like go on and on and on. If you're ever trapped in a bathroom, you can read Dr. Bronner's. Yeah, I originally heard of Dr. Bronner's when I was looking to do some traveling in New Zealand. And they said, bring Dr. Bronner's because it's really concentrated. And it is. It worked really well and it, it's really potent. And uh, that Castile smell is really interesting. Yeah, I started using it when when I was in rural China. And I wasn't necessarily sure if I would have access to sort of consistent places to shop. Because Castile soap, because of the way it is, depending on how you dilute it and if you mix in any oil with it, you can use it for your face, your body, your hair, your food, your clothes. And I have used it simultaneously on all of those things <laughs> and lived to tell the tale quite happily. So it's, it's also – this is probably the one that I think has one of the best price points of everything I'm going to talk about because even though a, a really large bottle could run you as high as, as 20 bucks. I, for my husband and I, using it for everything from personal grooming to cleaning, it takes us about six months to go through one of those bottles. So it certainly packs a punch. When it comes time for their certifications, much like Lush, they're really excited to say that they're organic, that they're vegetarian, and actually, uh, Bronner's has gone so far as to say we're completely vegan that they are kosher, that they are non-GMO. And then Bronner's has one thing that at first glance you think, oh, it's fair tree. But in fact, it's a stamp that's a fair for life. From the Marketing Ecology IML through their fair for life social and fair trade certification program. And what this particular verification does is it verifies that ethical working conditions and fair prices are provided along the entire supply chain. And Dr. Bronner's actually is really happy about it. And actually, if you look at some of their newer bottles, they were the first company, they say, to establish certified fair trade supply chains for coconut oil and palm oil. And palm oil and is a really big deal. It's, it's a really problematic ingredient yeah that's in everything yeah there's uh, a lot of slave labor in palm oil anyway continue the only issue i have with that and while i and i don't actually doubt at all that dr brommers has a squeaky clean supply chain they seem like a company that is a hundred percent devoted to this process they are still a family-owned company decades on they talk a lot and are very involved with sort of building equitable supply chains you know reforesting areas in south america being involved in youth and community services having as little waste and packaging in particular in fact on their bottles they suggest that you not buy their more expensive product which are the larger bottles and instead you find a distributor in your town that you can go to and just refill mm -hmm. <laughs> So, and, and they're really big on near, near zero waste. So as, as sort of wackadoodle as the bottle seems, Dr. Bronner's makes me happy when I purchase it because I think like, okay, like good, like this is a product that's worried about sustainability and I don't have to worry about feeling guilty about using this soap. The only issue I have with that is the Fair for Life certification because it doesn't seem to be super popular going to their website and going through their sort of certification costs and how to become certified. I'm not seeing a listing anywhere of other companies besides Dr. Brommer's that are registered as fair for life. And if this was a program that was created in 2005, I would hope to have more than just sort of Dr. Brommer's 
explicitly being a member of this group. Because again, as, as Seth and I have talked about, there is this issue of this was supposed to, the idea of fair trade was supposed to sort of demystify the fear of what to purchase or what was ethical to purchase. And in many cases, it just continues to obfuscate things. And that takes me to my final one, which is the company I'm happiest about actually being uh, fair trade, but has no fair trade stamp of any sort whatsoever. They are vegan, and they do mark that they are 100% cruelty-free. They have those stamps, but they have nothing regarding fair trade. Yet, uh, when I went on a Absolute Cosmetics binge over the summer of being really, really worried, was the makeup I, I was buying sustainable? Was it producing human trafficking? Because as I think I've talked on this podcast before, when you're buying cosmetics, say like a blush or an eyeshadow, anything that's got a lot of pigment into it, what you're buying is something that has a lot of sil- either silica, particularly if you're using like a pressed powder, powder or or mica. Might be pronounced mica. I'm gonna say mica. I think it's more fun. And that that is the mineral that puts sort of like the sparkle or the lasting power in eyeshadows and lipstick. It's also used in car paint, but it's it's primarily makeup. And that is primarily harvested by children, by child labor that is forced labor in typically India, but in a few other countries. India probably has the largest population of forced child microfarming. And you don't want your eyeshadow to have been created on the backs of a child or really anyone right especially because it's a non-essential you can you know i grooming is an essential in terms of like going out into the world it's for health purposes and also just like interacting with other human beings you don't really need lipstick i would i would say or at least i don't really need lipstick i just like it so as i was sort of casting around what i did was i just kept i went through every major makeup company you can think of from super high end like Dior, Chanel, Tom Ford, to sort of higher range, but not exclusive, so sort of like your Lancomes and your Urban Decays, to your drugstore like Maybelline, and then to indie companies. And what I was found was that I could not find on any of the websites anywhere, no matter what the priority point was of the product, any mention of human trafficking whatsoever. And when I would email these companies, the only people who would respond to me on their frequently asked questions page were the indie companies. And the indie companies were the only ones that were open to having a dialogue of, well, what do you mean by human trafficking? What do you mean about supply chain? Let's talk it out. And in some ways I get it because indie companies are all about sort of building their brand and having an involvement with the consumer. But at the same time, like you would think Maybelline would have a person assigned to this right but i think seth you and i have talked about how like we know some one through like a friend of a friend who like at a major car company and like they are the only supply chain person mm-hmm. like them they are the department so i guess maybe i'm hoping too much but of all the indie brands that i talked to shiro cosmetics which just happens to be a independent um so an indie a small batch handcrafted makeup company that does a lot of things based on geekery so they have a lot of their a lot of their products are named after things like lord of the rings or various animes or harry potter or video games Um, one of my favorite items from them is they have a whole line of things devoted to just nick cage (laughs) (laughs) which is just whimsy why not but like looking at their website now like you could go on right now and buy a collection of stuff that's all hobbit themed but when i contacted shiro cosmetics months and months ago when i was like listen what is this they were great and immediately responded with that their supply chain is is clean on all of their product and because they use very minimal packaging 
that is most likely clean as well, but they weren't 100% sure in their packaging. They're like, we'll, we'll check into that and let you know. But the fact that they could actually prove that their mica or their pigments were ethically sourced is great. And I am also here to tell you that uh, like, a, like a sample bag, which is about one eighth of a teaspoon, which is about all you need if you want to fill like a pan on a traditional eyeshadow palette, will run you all of a dollar in most cases. And so that they provide makeup for lips, face, and nails as well. So, and by face, I mean things like blushers, highlighters, pressed powders. I use a contouring powder that they produce, and I've actually slowly been phasing out all of my makeup that's not theirs, just not repurchasing as I buy, sort of just replacing things with theirs. Because you cannot beat the price point but you cannot beat the fact that this brand that from all accounts is run by like four people is very small, somehow is able to actually source the ingredients that they're using and don't need to sort of justify that supply chain by paying for a really expensive fair trade certification or stamp. And then by upping then the price of their their good. The problem that I have then with Shiro is not a problem with Shiro Cosmetics itself, but the problem of if you're just the average consumer and you want to purchase things, how how do you find this stuff unless you're in the know? And the answer is it's really difficult. Well, the, the devil's advocate question would then be how do they know that their product is ethically sourced? And for me on that, I think what you have to do in that case is I am inclined when a company tells me their product is ethically sourced to believe them automatically. And the reason for that is that you and I know with supply chains, they can be so messy and so difficult that I give people the benefit of the doubt that if you tell me it's a like the supply chain is clean, you're not trying you're not trying to lie. You're not trying to screw me over because the minute you say that you have a clear supply chain, if someone were to be able to, to look into it and, and dig through it, to, it would prove you not imagine the PR nightmare that would be. Yeah. But if you're a small company, you may not be targeted. Yeah. And that's part of the reason for a third party to do some sort of inspection is you have that extra level of distance to, to hopefully verify something. No, and I'm all for verification. I just, the way the system is now, I, it, I don't think it works. Yeah, I see cosmetics. It's, I don't know enough about it and the complexity of the supply chain. It, but mm -hmm. this is where that relationship and trust can, comes into play again that uh, we've, we've talked about a bit. Like if I am talking with Intelligentsia, a coffee in Chicago and I know that they have Michael Sheridan on staff and that he actually he really cares about farm workers and that when they're doing direct trade even though it's not certified I have a trust that they're actually making an effort to be ethical and invest in their producers coffee also has a very simple supply chain compared to some other things. There's essentially one type of product from multiple locations. For cosmetics, how diverse is a supply chain potentially, JJ? Oh, super diverse. Because so what you're having is you're having things like the pigments themselves, which a lot of times are copyrighted by particular companies, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have something that's generally like the binding agent. So if if you're going to take, say, like a pressed powder, like a like a loose powder, and then press it and have it keep, then you have the like the preservation agent. So that's the thing that keeps your makeup from getting like moldy mm -hmm. and getting gross. And then you might even have like a fourth and final product, which is like is is this product like matte? Does it have glitter in it? Like, what is it? And so you need to eventually at one point have all those things mixed together. And then you need to have them packed in a vacuum sealed, completely like clean environment. 
then have whatever sort of extra packaging was doing the outside and sent in. And those themselves can be from multiple places, like pigments. There's multiple sources of pigments, right? Mm-hmm. And that's and that's also part of the thing is that if you if you look up things like online like dupes, duping is really big and popular. Uh, so a, a lipstick from Mac that could run like thirty, forty dollars. You know, buying the equivalent from a company called Nix for like three fifty. And generally what's different then is, is sort of the texture or sort of the packaging. So if you're buying, uh, say, a makeup pencil, like an eyeliner, the liner is actually the material on the inside. And then there's sort of the packaging on the outside that forms the pencil shell. And that can be completely separate and different. And then you get into things like people have copyrights on what the what the bottle looks like or the packaging looks like or the particular color shade or just sort of the formulation because then you think about all of the things particularly like foundations now that have things mixed in there too like sunscreen and like an acne fighter or a toner right so wear sunscreen makeup (laughs) yeah that's just a general one. But I think that that just leads to sort of this general confusion because you have a mix of these products, some of which might actually be like vegetation or edible themselves, like cocoa. But then also things that are sort of just like chemical composites that were created in a lab for the sake of giving you a little bit more shine. But then at the same time, you have this this like mica, mica pigment. And so it all turns into this really big mess. I know that when I, um, at one point in, in China, when we were living in Southern China, I was in a place that was known for being, uh, outside of Ningbo, that was known for, the city of Ningbo, known for being like the largest creator of just cosmetics packaging. They didn't create any of the cosmetics, but they created like, say, the bottle that then the foundation was later put in. So you have one factory, say, mixing the cosmetic, you have another factory making the packaging, and then you have a third factory that's combining those those things together. Which is a little bit different, I think, than most, say, say coffee, right? It's generally sort of a two-step process. Yeah, well, it's the main thing is it's centered on one type of product, and that yeah. makes it a lot simpler. So yeah, so everybody, that's some discussion of fair trade and fair trade-ish, where it's not really a certification. That doesn't even get into some other type of things like Rugmark, which is a label for carpets produced in India, where they make sure that it's not done with illegal child labor. Uh, I believe JJ and I saw a video on that once. It was mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Well, and then there's also two things that are not in themselves fair trade, but will have other labels that make you sort of think of them as being fair trade. So in particular, what I'm thinking of here is dead stock or, or fashion companies using the term dead stock. And they'll normally, you'll see this a lot on Instagram. People will hashtag their clothing with like hashtag dead stock, hashtag sustainable. Because what dead stock is doing is it's taking fabric that would otherwise probably end up in a landfill stuff that was created by a factory and then not completely used, right? Mm-hmm. And then using that to create fashion. And so once it's used, once it's gone, it's gone because it was literally dead stock. It's stock they can't create again. And this tends to up the prices for things because it's, it's a one-off. You're never going to be able to get the same type of sweater again. But people will list it as this, you know, it's sustainable because it is using something that would otherwise land, like ends in a landfill. But... Does that mean that that initial fabric was created uh, in a way that was ethical and that wasn't exploitable or was, didn't involve human trafficking? No, it just means that that fabric is, is done and over with. Just because, although I am a huge advocate, just again, cheapness of buying used clothing, and also Seth and I have talked about clothing is a, is a huge huge clothing creation particularly like fast fashion so things you would get you know when you buy a shirt for three dollars there's probably no way that that was created without some involvement 
of human trafficking or exploitative labor, either on the cotton production end or the factory production end, just just because of that low price point. Doesn't mean that high price point is clear either. It's just that the low price point is a pretty good indicator. But so when you buy things from like whether it's a vintage store or consignment shop or like a goodwill type place, you are avoiding the creation of new product. So in that way, you are doing sustainable things that are good for the environment, but you're also doing things that are human trafficking limiting. But you have to be aware that there can still be exploitative labor happening in the store you're buying it from. In particular, Goodwill has gotten cited a few times. I remember back in, I want to say 2013, for only paying some of its workers who who were disabled who only got 22 cents an hour because of the special wage certificate program which was a, a law that said that you could hide to get disabled workers hired you could pay them less so just because you're buying the product that doesn't involve exploitative labor doesn't mean that the selling of that product didn't involve exploitative labor Right, and to balance that out a bit, you know, there's there's a line. Like mm-hmm. some people who have some sort of disability take a lot of extra attention. And so there might be it might be providing a service by letting them work there and do something useful. Mm-hmm. But it's it's where where is that line? Where where is it actually yeah. a burden where they're providing a service and and it's mutually beneficial? And what times might it be actually just exploitative and an excuse to pay very little money? But, oh, and I should make it very clear, not a single company I advocate for gives me any of their stuff for free or gives me even a discount. I just buy a lot of their stuff. But I would be open for it. I could be bribed. Yes, if you would like to sponsor us or give oh. us free stuff. Right? Send us an email and we'll talk about it. Then we'll have to give disclaimers. But we're okay with that. I'm okay with that. Dr. Bronner. I mean, I know Dr. Bronner, the original, has passed on. But there's like another one. Dr. Bronner the second. Give me your soap. <laughs> So I will be doing a coffee-specific show in the future, which will focus not much on fair trade, but just on on that industry. If there's any specific industry you'd like to hear about, uh, fill out our contact form and let us know, or let us know on uh, social media or some other means, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Because we realize this was really broad and and, uh, a, a deep look can uh, take time and we're happy to do that if there is the interest i will say though maybe for a little teaser that for our next podcast tentatively what we have planned to talk about is actually the exploitative labor that exists between strip clubs and exotic dancers so really we are open for talking about anything but in particular even if you're sort of concerned about things that deal more sex trafficking rather than labor trafficking we are perfectly fine about talking about that too and with that uh have a great week bye everybody bye Bye, shiro (laughs) bye this has been speaker for the living for extended notes and sources visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com